Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Pete A. Turner, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thanks, man. It's great to be on. You know, it's one of the best things about having uh, a show is that you get to be on other people's shows and see how they do it. And, and, and I know what it takes to put someone on your show. And so I appreciate the time. It's not it's not easy to do this stuff. There's a lot of work before and after it. Of course, we get to have fun right now. But anytime something like this gets to happen, I just um, I, I, I appreciate that someone actually wants to hear something I have to say. Well, uh, Jeff had a lot of good things to uh, say about you. And when I asked if he knew anybody that would be great on the show, he he said you first. Oh, uh, and of course, when I say Jeff, I mean, speedy cop. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think we need to say Jeff's last name. He's just simply known as Speedy Cop, and he's Speedy fairly Cop. well known in certain circles. And when he's not known, you know, like the upside down Camaro or the uh, airplane race car or the helicopter race car or the uh, my favorite is the Honda Accordion that actually played music. <laughs> I just love it. <laughs> he did. He didn't break that up with me. Uh, and I did see I, the upside down Camaro and the plane come up every time you Google him. But uh, yeah, the Accordion. I should have asked him about that one. I didn't know about that one. How do How do you two know each other? Racing. We know each other through racing. We, uh, we, so our crew of people are not associated with Speedy Cops crew of people because we're on opposite coasts, but we have a ridiculous car as well. And it's super fast. It's usually the fastest car on the track, but it breaks a lot. And so yeah. we're ridiculous. We race this car super hard. We work our butts off trying to get it back on the track. And even if we're coming in, you know, 113th, 113th out of 150, we're just stoked to take the checkered flag because the car is always breaking. We routinely get the the woe and misery award with our car. But so we took it, we took that stupid thing across the nation in a trailer that we broke driving across Wyoming. We jumped it not on purpose off a of cattle guard. So the RV and the trailer, same time in the air. And we broke our trailer. We didn't know this for for couple of years, actually, we kept blowing out tires. So we hauled this thing uh, in our broken trailer across the country. We raced at Daytona, and we wanted to get another good driver there with us because we were going to win. We didn't win. And um, it's funny, uh, a sob won the whole thing. It just went around the track all day long. It sipped on gas, and we were like, passing cars and everything. But uh, we broke like a, like a five-cent part, not even that, like a two-cent part, a rubber, a rubber ring. Uh, hemmed us up. We had to swap it out and everything. And yeah, we got the car back on the track. We all had a great time. But uh, that's how I know Jeff is through racing. Yeah, Je Jeff is uh, quite creative and he's completely committed to it. It sounds like you are too. I am not as committed as Jeff. Jeff, It's Jeff's life to do that kind of stuff. I like to go do it. I like ridiculous things. And so um, I, I don't have to race. I do enjoy it. But uh, but Jeff is a lot more into it. Like, I would never want to shop. I would never go into it. That's just not how I spend my time. Do you spend most of your time on the podcast these days? I spend a lot of time on the podcast. I spend a lot of time working on other projects and doing things. So, yeah, for me, turning a wrench is not at all enjoyable. I, I really don't like it. I'd rather go source parts or or go do errands while they guys who love working on the car work on it. And, and you need all these different people. Like, can you go meet someone from this brand and see if maybe we can either get a sample for free or I'm good at that kind of thing. Like, how can I meet someone? How can I improve the condition of the team as opposed to improve the condition of the car? So you're more uh, people oriented. Sounds yeah, like. for sure. For sure. Very cool. So what was it like growing up in, in California? It's great. I, I mean, a lot of ways it was idyllic. You know, every, every family has their problems and stuff like that, but 
I grew up in a time, well, gosh, I don't know how well I would survive today. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't, wasn't prescribed anything. Who knows today? Like, it seems like we prescribe a lot of things. Um, I, uh, I was a year ahead of my peers in school. So I was a little immature at times, but I also was basically their age. And so there'd be like these gaps where I could sense like, I'm just a little more immature than these guys. I'm not quite ready for this. Even though six months later, I'd be the same basic age. So um, there was that going on when I was young. The other thing that was interesting was, is I grew up in the, you know, the seventies, eighties, right? So I was born in 70. And so I was a kid from like, you know, 72 to 87, you know, or like my kid years. And, um, we were a lot more free, you know, parents were like, Hey, we'll see you later. I got my bike. I had about $4 in my pocket. Most of it's in coin. <laughs> I'm out the door. If I can find some fireworks, maybe a nudie magazine, and maybe my friend can sneak some cigarettes from his grandpa. You know, we'll have a fucking awesome day. Can I swear on the podcast? You can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wait, so at what age were you scoring nudie magazines? I don't know. As soon as they were around, you're like, I know I like that. You know, like what's behind the wood panel there on the shelf at 7-Eleven? <laughs> How do I get my hands on that? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. Uh, you always gravitated to the guy that looked like he was 18 and was not afraid to go into a store and just yeah. give it a shot. Yeah. Or, you know, because our parents were gone, if the dad had a collection of whatever, Playboy, Wee, Cherry, Nate, fill in the name magazine. Then you know that's what you would do is you would just go grab those things and and then try to figure out how you're going to get one out of the house. Like you have to lift it off of your friend's dad without your friend or his dad finding out. <laughs> yeah, oh, fun times, man. Yeah, I'm a kid of the '70s and '80s as well. I was born in '68, so yeah, your time frame is really close to overlapping mine perfectly. Uh, yeah, and parents uh, weren't helicopter parents; they were more like, "Hey, you're annoying me. Get out of the house, kid." Kind of. Yeah. Parent. Yeah. Well, and, and then for me, uh, my dad was pretty abusive. And so uh, not only was I annoying, um, there was danger in the house. And so like, hey, if I'm outside, no one messes with me. I'm left to my own devices. I made some poor choices. I had some bad devices. I, you know, sometimes I tell my girlfriend, I'll, I'll leak a story out. And I'm like, I, and I started off with, I was a hooligan, you know, and I wasn't a bad kid. I just was completely unsupervised. And, and I had a real problem with authority, you know, so um, all kinds of things were done that, that today you couldn't do because there'd be a camera seeing you do whatever. I mean, my God, we used to wreck our neighborhood during Halloween. There'd be pumpkin everywhere. Well, those are felonies in some places these days. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. I, I'm positive I've committed felonies and gotten away with it, you know, because of the time we lived in, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, people weren't as upset about things as they seem to be these days, but... What, yeah, what, and, what and some some degree of hooliganry is it's just it's all right, you know. It, it, boys being boys gets to be a thing, you know. And and sure, there are things that I'm like, oh, I'm embarrassed I did that now, but that's because I know better. Back then, it was just you know unsupervised fun. Are you? How many siblings do you have? Uh, that's a good question. I my brother. Um, Eric, who I grew up with, he passed away last year, so he is one. And then a year ago today, yeah, today, a year ago today, I found my biological father and his other kids. So I have three brothers and one sister. You just family. discovered this family a year uh, ago. A year ago, yeah. A year ago today, Kitty, you got to go somewhere else, Kitty. What, what part of the country are they in? Here, we're all in California. Okay. So have you become fast buds? Have I what? You become fast buddies with your uh, siblings? 
Yeah, my my youngest brother is coming up uh, tomorrow, and we're going to go to a hockey game where I'm at here in California. And so uh, I got to make sure my cat doesn't kick my ass. Um, <laughs> she's mad that I took her off my lap. Anyhow, um, yeah, he's Dane, and he's coming up to or coming down to see me, and we're going to go out to a hockey game. He's going to spend a couple of days down here, and uh, and it's a whole new family too. There's my dad's cousins are all down here, and all of their kids are all down here. Plus, my own uncles and and uh, and aunts and cousins are all that. There's tons of them. So I've got like a new family of like 30 people that uh, that are close enough that I can interact with them. That's incredible, right? Mm-hmm. It is. It is. It really is. Well, you said your dad was abusive earlier. You're talking about a stepfather? Yeah, he adoptive, adoptive father. Adoptive so he father. was my dad growing up. So like when I say dad, I always have to clarify and say my dad, Bob, or my dad, Dennis, right? Because my dad, Dennis, is around. My dad, Bob. He's passed on. But yeah, he was, you know, just the standard thing. Like, you know, men of that era just had a different way of parenting. And, um, you know, it's just uh, it was better for me to be outside than it was to be inside. Yeah, it's it's uh, interesting. My dad didn't hug me as a kid, but he also was not abusive, at least not not in an aggressive physical sort of way. But it sounds like uh, dad Bob was. You know, my, my dad, Bob, uh, had his things, right? And I'm sure he did the best with what he had. And and he wasn't 100% horrible either, right? There's plenty of times where he did a great job raising me. And sometimes um, what I learned from him was to do the opposite of what he did. You know, he provided an example, good and bad. And uh, hopefully I'm a better human than he was. But, um, you know, all, all things told, my dad balanced the scale pretty well between good and bad. It's just that when he was bad, he was particularly horrible. And then when he was good, he had a beautiful heart and did the right thing. Yeah. Uh, humans are complicated. That's for sure. And some <laughs> people are put on earth to, uh, to be models and others are put on earth to say, don't be like that guy. Yeah. 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 And we, you know, we did all the normal family stuff. We went on vacations to Hawaii and Florida and all those things. And my dad would say, hey, let's go see a movie. And, you know, so we did. Then he tried, like, let's play baseball. He was never a sports guy. He was a musician. But he did give me the the gift of music and musicality, you know. And so I don't really play an instrument to speak of. I mean, I can play the harmonica and I can kind of campfire play the guitar. But my appreciation, my knowledge of music, pipe organ, he gave me a love of pipe organ. I didn't even know he did that. I love the pipe organ. And um, and now that my dad's not around, my dad, Bob, not around, He uh, we can be better friends. You know, because he can't really hurt anybody. He can't hurt me anymore. He's just like this, this dude that was around that took great care of me as, as well as he could when he was when he was here. And his time passed, and now it's I can I can appreciate the finer things. Yeah, uh, pipe organ, man. That, I did not see that coming, Pete. What is yeah. it, the pipe organ that you enjoy so much? What's that now about the pipe organ? Why do you enjoy the pipe organ? It is the biggest, baddest instrument. You know, like when it shows up, you go to and I love going to concert halls and symphonies and all that stuff. And that's that's because my dad had a degree in in, uh, in divine music and then he got another degree in, in divinity. So I've got a lot of appreciation for Bach and Mozart and Brahms and all these dudes. And I've, I've only expanded that as an adult. I've learned more about this music and the history of it, what it means. And so when I was a kid, our local church was going to buy a pipe organ and my dad was the guy who knew how to play it. And so they're like, why don't you go look around and figure out how we get smarter and what to buy? And so my dad would take me on these trips and we would go look at the pipe organ. And because there was no one else to talk to, my dad would talk to me about the pipe organ. And so he would just pound all this stuff into my head. And so I would learn it because 
you know, I mean, he's talking and I remember stuff. And so I developed this appreciation for it. And it's like, it's like this 800 pound gorilla with the symphony. You got these delicate instruments, like, you know, like, like the violin and, you know, the flute. And here's this giant beast behind it that if it chooses to, can drown everything out. And you physically feel a pipe organ when it's going and you can hear it breathe. Like you can hear like the reeds, you know, it's drawing in air and you're like, oh man, and you can hear it blowing air, right? And so it's like this, this almost like this alive thing that, uh, that performs. And it's just, if you know what you're listening to, it's just a remarkable instrument. And, and you don't get to hear it very often. It's, you know, you see people went to church all the time and lots of churches had pipe organs. That's just not the case anymore. And so it's just uh, whenever I get a chance to hear it performed live, you know, I love it. And they always play like the big songs because like, hey, I, if I'm going to play, I'm going to play this, you know, like Phantom of the Opera theme or whatever it is. That's really cool, man. You are uh, extremely unique in that way. I mean, I grew up with uh, pipe organs in churches when I go to church with my friends. Um, and I think we had a smaller version of the church I grew up in. But throughout Europe, there are massive pipe organs. Yeah. It has to be the largest instrument on earth, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess you can figure some way to make something else bigger, but in terms of man-made, absolutely. The one here down the road from me, the Crystal Cathedrals, uh, Oregon, is one of the biggest ones in the world, and it is it is enormous. And I can't hear it from my house, but I, if they turned it all the way up, I believe it probably would be possible. Like if you could quiet everything else down, it can it can talk miles away because it's just a big, big thing, and it, it's millions of dollars to refurbish this thing, and this. This one was about 30 years old and they, they took it all apart, sent it over to Italy and brought it back. And, oh, wow. you know, it's amazing when you have something that's that valuable that you'll spend millions and millions of dollars just to refurbish it. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So when you were in high school, what were you doing? What, what were you known as? Were you a jock, more of an academic kid, kind of a kid who wasn't really into school? What were you? No, um, I was a social kid for sure. And for whatever reason in my class, we had our cliques and stuff, but most everybody was able to move around between cliques. So I was athletic, but I wasn't a jock. Uh, I was smart, but I wasn't a, um, like a bookworm. I wasn't like a nerd or anything, but I could go into the chess club and hang out with those cats and, and play chess. And, and maybe that's me. Maybe that's just our year. Our year in particular in my school, we're just very close. And um, I'm sort of the mayor of my class in some ways where I get people together and that sort of has grown as I've become an adult and everything. But um, I was just, um, I was just a regular goofy kid, you know, just, I wasn't a surfer, but I hung out with them. Uh, you know, I was a punk rock kid, but I didn't do all of the punk rock things, the punk rock kid, you know, but I, I could just bounce around group to group. And again, a lot of us, a lot of us were like that. A jack of all interest sort of thing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which has really translated into my adulthood. So when you were, uh, like, say, a sophomore, junior, senior in high school, what did you think you were going to do after school? <laughs> uh, you know, I'll, I really didn't know, honestly. You know, I had some ideas. Uh, and when I went to school, even then I didn't know. And I always kind of thought, maybe I'll do something in entertainment, you know. But but I didn't really know how to. And, you know, from our era, it was like, how do I even go to school, you know? And my parents both had degrees. And even they were like, should you just go to school? You know, like there was no sophistication in this. And so I, I sort of was just um, a general ed guy for a long time. And then I finally decided, like, let me go into TV, radio, broadcasting and try to be like a sports announcer. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of the way I geared my education. And, and that really was like a journalism, like a TV, radio, journalism degree is really what that turned into. And so that, that was what I tried to do. Uh, 
it wasn't easy to get into that field, especially like when I got hired, there weren't a lot of jobs. And um, it was like the dawning of like, hey, we're not just going to have white dudes do the sports. And so, you know, I didn't fit the bill like I would have before. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, it was great to see like women and, and other people doing this job. So it's just my timing in that case. My timing and connections weren't so that I could get a job in that field. And so I didn't. So TV and radio from the part of the world you're from has to be really competitive, I imagine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was going to have to move to start, you know, and but unless you knew somebody like a family member, you had to go to a market. So I just went to the back end of the market book. I'm like, OK, Bozeman, Montana. Can I get a job there? No. You know, like, all right. Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Can I get a job? No. You know, Plano, <laughs> Texas. No. Like, all right. Well, I'm running out of places to be told no at, you know. And and so, I, again, I didn't didn't get a job. And that time, like you would, um, there was a service you could apply to. And so you would call on the phone. It would say, there is a job at, you know, KPI, whatever, uh, at this place, send your tape. And so you would put your tape in the mail and then wait. (laughs) And then you would get a bag back with your, with your letter in it, you know, with your tape and Hey, thanks for sending your tape. No, thanks for the job. And you're like, wow, holy cow. You know, this is not a, not an easy thing to figure out. How many times were you told no? All of them. Wow. Every, every time. Every time. Um, 30? I don't know. At some point, you're because it, it was a long process, right? Like to send your stuff off and you wait. And you're still sending off other tapes. But, um, you know, you get to like a, a number. And again, remember, I'm playing at the back end of the market. So all of a sudden you realize, like, if I can't get a job in whatever, Daytona Beach, Florida, holding a camera paid $15 an hour or whatever it was at the time. Um, then at some point you have to figure something else out. And that's ultimately the point I got to. It's like, I've got to do something. Um, otherwise I'm going to end up working at Costco, which I was working at Costco, pushing carts around. And one day I was pushing carts in the rain and I thought, I got to do something else because I'm just going to get a DUI and be really good at softball. And I don't want those to be my two big achievements in life, you know? And look, there's nothing wrong with playing softball and getting DUIs and working at Costco. I just, I wanted to try something else, you know? Yeah, so what did you pivot to? Counterintelligence in the army. So you joined the army. Yeah, yeah. You uh, gave Uncle Sam some of your time. Yeah, five years of time as a counterintelligence agent, a couple of years of reserve time after that. And I went from never even considering it to being in the army in 30 days. I was like, I got to do something. I was pushing carts. And I'm like, I got to do something. I'm going to go to the recruiter tomorrow and see what I can see. And then that turned into, you know, this crazy career that I had. So were you open to Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, or was Army the way you wanted to go? Tell me yeah, I didn't care. I just, I walked in, you know, they, they were all side by side where I was at. And so I walked into the Army place first because it was on the right and I parked on the right. And I walked in and I said, you know, I'm not really sure what I want to do or if I want to do this, but I'd like to look at what this might be. And then I talked to that dude for an hour and I'm like, and I'm going to go right next door and I'm going to go to the next door and on the next door. And, um, you know, the Army just, uh, they caught the vibe. And really, by the time I got to Air Force, I was like, I don't want to be in the Air Force. For me, that wasn't uh, that was, wasn't masculine enough. Not that the Air Force is not masculine, but I'm like, if I'm going to join one of these, it's going to be Army, Navy, or Army, Navy, or, or Marines, right? And my brother was a Marine. And when I talked to the Marines, they just didn't, I, I didn't know what I was there to buy. And they weren't buying me, I guess, if I was going to be honest about it. Mm. And so they didn't try all that hard to get me there. They, they for sure wanted me, but, you know, I think they were looking for something else. And, and I was lucky. My recruiter was, I was the last guy my, my recruiter put in the Army. 
So he was on the back end where he's like, hey, man, you sign up if you want. Because I, I told him specifically, I'm like, hey, thanks for all this information. Um, give me some time to think about it, you know, and I'll decide. But don't call me and bug me because I'll just I'll just tell you no. And he's like, I don't, I don't care if you sign up or not. <laughs> you know, all of my numbers are in the bank already. So anything I do now is just gravy. And, and that's how I got in. Is I just decided one day I'm going to go look into it. And then I thought, what the heck am I waiting for? Let's go. Did you sign up for anything in particular or was it more of a generic sign up? Yeah, I signed up for counterintelligence agent, which is basically a spy. How did, how did you know what that was? I didn't. I didn't. We watched the video. They had like these laser discs. You slide them into the laser disc machine and me and the recruiter watched it. And he's like, well, I don't know what that is, really. I don't know what you do. <laughs> but if that's the case. And this is a guy that's been in the Army. He's an MP, right? And he's like, if, if that's the case, the thing I know is the higher the number of the job, and my number was 97. There's really no numbers above that for job codes. He's like, the better the job is. I don't know what it is. It's got a high job code number. He's like, you should do this job. I think it'll be good. And I'm like, okay. Because <laughs> you, know, you just can't tell what what your job was going to be from what they showed. They, they were bad at marketing it. Oh, the Army's still really bad at marketing it. And to your, the higher the number, the better. I think from a uh, translation to civilian jobs, that's probably mostly accurate. Except counterintel, I mean, obviously it led into some things that you, you did after the, the army, but uh, like 11 Bravo, that's, I think that's the lowest one. That's not Basically, a great question. It doesn't translate yeah. very well. Yeah. Parachute loader is like another team number, team number, tankers, forward observers, all those infantry, all those kind of guys, yeah. they're all super low numbers, you know? So yeah. Well, and there are some higher number jobs that suck, but it's, it's not the rule. The, the norm yeah. is that they, they are down low. I think that's generally accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where'd you end up going to basic? Fort Leonard Wood. Fort Leonard Wood. What year was this? 94, the spring of 94. I got I got to uh I got to actually to my barracks and started basic training on April Fool's Day in 94. That's uh poetic, I think. Yeah, it was. It was. You know, for as much time as I had for irony and all that kind of stuff, I, I kept that in my brain as like I'll never forget that. And and I have it. Yeah, you 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 will not. I'm I'm sure. Yeah, I was there in 91, 92. Uh, it was it was an okay army post back then, but man, it is in the middle of nowhere. It is, it is. Yeah, it you're is. two hours we, from St. Louis, three hours from Kansas City, right? Yeah. What unit were you in? I, I did uh, officer basic course out there. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of times I'll find someone. There's only so many units that do that, and so a lot of us were Delta two ten. You know because. That's the unit that you're in. I don't know what the other higher assignment was, but Delta 210 was my was my basic training unit. So and uh was basic what 10 weeks back then? Eight weeks? It was eight weeks. Eight weeks plus whatever zero week time you had. I didn't have any zero week time. So all in, I think I was nine and a half, no, eight and a half weeks from like, hey, welcome to Fort Leonard Wood to see you later. Like nine and a half weeks. It's a nah, weird I think like it was nine weeks, probably. It's a weird experience, right? Yeah, I didn't know. You got to remember, I knew nothing about the Army. I had an uncle that was in the uh, Air Force, and we never really talked about it. So I didn't know. I didn't know the first thing. I didn't know what the ranks were. I didn't know how the command structure was. I didn't know any of that stuff. So I'm pouring through, but I'm smart, right? And I have good memory. So I'm pouring through the smart book, getting smarter and smarter by the day. I knew I had to master this stuff. And then th the first meal I had at basic training, not at Fort Leonard, but at basic training, um, you know, you're everybody standing there, parade rest, and you're like scooching up, scooching up. Everybody like, and people don't understand how, like, there's this massive chow hall with all kinds of space, 
And these hundred dudes are standing as close as they can be, like nuts to butts. And they're not joking, nuts to butts. And you're like, okay, nuts to butts, let's go. And uh, my drill sergeant is walking down and he's like, you know, and he would say something like, what's your motherfucking first general order? And the guy would be like, I don't know. He's like, back of the line. And you're like, oh, fuck, I'm starving. I don't want to go to the back of the line. So I started listening to what he was saying. And he asked, and he knows that I'm new, right? He knows I'm new. And so he go, and maybe like five guys before, he's like, you know, who's your battalion sergeant major? And the guy's like, you know, Sergeant Major Johnson, right? And so I, I was just trying to remember every answer I heard that I could remember. And he got to me and he's like, who's your motherfucking sergeant major for the battalion? And I'm like, Sergeant Major Johnson. And he looked at me. Drive on. Went to the next guy. And I'm like, yes, I got to drive on. I don't even know what that means. But I got one. And I get to eat. And I don't got to go to the back of the line. It's, it's, it sounds positive. Yeah, yeah. And the thing was, is I knew I got it right. And he was, like, surprised. He definitely did a double take. And he looked at me like, all right, who's this guy? You know? Because here's what, here's what I didn't know at the time. They're on a tight schedule. And they're worried about the dudes who are borderline and worse. Because their job is to get guys graduated. And so I could run fast. I could do push-ups. I could shoot a gun. I was athletic. I didn't mind do, doing what I was told to do there because, like, they have a very simple job, right? And so they didn't have to worry about me. As a matter of fact, uh, they made me one of the guys that they called on to do things, you know, like, hey, run over to here and go do this. And so I take off and I'd go do it. And they knew I would haul ass and go do whatever had to be done, deliver a piece of paper, you know, just stupid stuff within the, uh, the unit area. But it was stuff they didn't have to do, and they knew they could count on me to do it. And so uh, they, for the most part, left me alone. Yeah, if, if you can make it through just about anything it, it, the U.S. government at, or the military in particular throws at you if you're reliable, smart enough, and uh, don't quit. Right. Really, and, and not being thrown off by people yelling at you or demanding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Just don't, don't let it bother you. Oh, my God. My brother was in basic boot camp at the Marines the same exact time I was in basic. This worked out that way. It wasn't designed. And we would write each other letters back and forth. And my drill sergeants figured out that my brother was in boot camp. And so they would always grab my, and, it, and this will sound like a felony to everybody else, but you and I both know this is no big deal. And so they'd grab my letter specifically and read it. And my brother would put all kinds of stuff in there to get my ass kicked by the drill sergeants. And I say ass kicked. You get a lot of attention and, and you know, get some razzing. And so I would write all kinds of stuff on the outside of my letter, knowing that the drills, you know, the, uh, the, the drill instructors and the Marines would read it out loud. And like next thing you know, my brother's naked in a hallway getting <laughs> foot powder tossed on him, you know, like you're a polar bear, you're a polar bear, you know. And so um, all of these crazy things happened because my brother Eric and I were in, in the basic training element of our, our respective service at the same time. And it made for this uh, really interesting experience for me while I was in basic because it was. Oh, and also my friend was a general and he uh, his dad, his dad was a general. And so he would send me letters on general's um, letterhead. And so those letters got left alone. They're like, oh, shit, Pete's got a letter from a general. There you go, Pete. Like they would call me Pete specifically. Oh, here you go, Pete. And they wouldn't fuck with me. <laughs> so, well, so wait a minute. Your friend was uh, intentionally using general letterhead, and and yeah, his, his dad was a general, and so um, his dad had to have told him. He's like, send Pete letters using these envelopes, and That's so he brilliant. would send me like little press clippings, but they would never ever open it. You know, and it, like it checked him up. They're like, oh, there's a star and a red flag. All right. Here, here you go. You know, they just be nice to me. You were, so, and I didn't know this going in at all. I didn't set this up. This was just, you know, because of my network and the people that I knew, they did it for me. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's weird. I, I kind of went into the military, even though my my dad and my grandfather were both military guys. They really didn't tell me much. And so I kind of went, went in like I'm learning a lot here. Uh, I wish yeah. I knew half of this before I got here. You know, it's funny when I so um, one of the days I was on a group of people that had to go back to like the main post to go do whatever it was. I, you know, some kind of admin thing. And so we were there and we had to get lunch. And by the way, I was an E4. I was a specialist when I went through basic training for the audience. That just means I had a college degree when I showed up. So I was 24. I have a college degree to like, this guy's not a complete idiot. Give him responsibility over the other guys because they are completely idiots. And so um, maybe I was in charge of this group of four people. I really don't remember. I just know we got in the car, drove over to the other side of post, had to do a couple of things and then get out of there. And I was sort of like the, the head knucklehead. Anyhow, um, I, I know nothing about the Army. And so we see these guys that just graduated from basic and we're like, hey, what's up? Yeah. And like everything's going pretty smoothly, you know, but I don't know what to expect. So every day I'm like, I have no idea what to expect. I don't know anything. And they're like, what was the worst day? What was the worst thing? They're like, oh, the gas chamber. And I'm like, oh. what? The gas chamber. Now, you got to keep in mind, when I got in the Army, it was right after California started executing inmates. Again, after the, the prohibition on it from the early 70s. And so when they say gas chamber, I'm thinking San Quentin gas chamber. And I was like, wait, mm. what are you talking about? And they'll, you know, because... Robert Alton Harris gets a sign. We're like, oh, this is inhumane. We're not going to do this anymore. We're going to go to injection. So that's what I know about the gas chambers, that you use it with cyanide pills. And then these guys are like, yeah, you have to take your mask off and breathe in the air. And I'm like, can't do that. It's got cyanide in it. You know, I really am that, like, I'm a rube, but when it comes to the army, I have no idea. And so I get there and then I, I'm asking, I'm like, are they going to try to kill us in this thing? How are we? I know that can't be right. And they're like, yeah, it's just tear gas. And I'm like, well, that still sounds terrible. And they're like, yeah, you have to. And I got kind of coached up on what to do. And then there's all the rumors like drink milk, don't drink milk or whatever it was. Anyhow, it wasn't that big of a deal. It sucks. Once you've been through it once, you're like, I know what this is. It doesn't suck that bad now that you know. It's unenjoyable, right, as you know, but. It was just funny because I that's how that's how unknown the army was to me. It was like I thought they were gonna like like you have to make sure you trust your mask. I'm like, I already trust it. I believe them. I'm gonna put it on. You don't have to give me a bunch of cyanide gas. I'm like cyanide gas. What are you talking about? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I was listening to a couple of SEALs on a podcast the other day, and apparently they videoed the, the tear gas chamber for SEALs going through buds. Yeah. And people are like, You shouldn't do that in training anymore. And I'm like, what? It's not yeah. something I want to do after work every day, but like, right. it's not that big of a deal. Right. Yeah. It isn't that big of a deal. It sounds horrible. And, and honestly it is, but every time I went to the, uh, the gas chamber after that one, it was never the level of gas that they had at basic where they really fogged you Two, it was, um, it was like, I know what this is. And so you would go with no mask on at all. And you would just stand there and be like, this is just tear grass. And so I wasn't freaked out. And I wasn't the only one doing this. It was sort of like a rite of passage. Like if you were a badass, you didn't wear a mask. And I was a badass. So I'm like, I'm not going to wear a mask in this thing. You know, because nobody, we're all doing it to each other. So no one's like put all of the tablets in. It was like, yeah, whatever, go and go through. So you would breathe it up, get everything, you know, flowing out of your face. And then you walk out and air off. And it's like, yeah, no big deal. That sucked. But if you don't know that going in, yeah, it's just like getting blood rank. I was never going to punch somebody in the chest and, you know, give them blood rank. I just give them the old tap on the shoulder. But um, when they hit me in, in the chest and gave me blood rank, I'm like, yeah, that's that's what happens. It's not hazing. It's just it's just what we do. You know, it's a rite of passage. And I'm not going to deny anybody that. 
rite of passage. Yeah, well, and it, it's uh, it's unique, and it it bonds uh, folks that have served together. Yeah, right, right, and and really, we're talking about things that are no worse than what you might do on accident to yourself in a garage, anyhow. Like none of this is, it's not hazing per se, right? Like yes, you're going to get some pokey things in there. Maybe you get some scarring and a little bit of blood. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but it's not the end of the world either. You know, like you just stand there and you deal with it. And it's not, I promise me getting promoted and getting blood rank was not even in the top 100 worst things I had to endure while I was in the army. Yeah. There's no doubt. No, no yeah. question. All right. So uh, I, obviously you can't talk about all of this and I don't want to get into ta tactics, techniques and procedures with you about being a, an army spy, but uh, yeah. high level. Uh, tell ask me what whatever you want. I'll ask if I can't answer it. I'll, I won't, you won't even know. All right. Fair enough. It. So at, at a high level, what is uh, an army, an enlisted army spy doing counter intel work all about? So that job in particular is really multifaceted. There's lie detector people. There's people that emplace bugs or look for bugs. There's people that do what's called strategic debriefing, which is not interrogation, but it's like, let's say that your interpreter gets um, uh, kidnapped in Iraq, right? You need a specific kind of debriefer to take that person and go through the process. So there's that job. There's, uh, gosh, there's people that go out specifically and just hunt for spies. In my case, I was a tactical collector. And that wasn't the job designation. It was just how it ended up. That was the luck of the, of the dice. And so my job was to go out and find out things that the commander and his staff couldn't possibly know. So I would get access to the battlefield either directly by myself or with the unit, depending on how permissible the area was. And my job was to go meet people, network into groups and find things out. And if I found someone that was particularly juicy, work that operation specifically to find out again, what the commander wanted to know. And what does the commander want to know? They want to know everything, but they want to know things that are specific to their mission. And, and the basic rule of thumb for me, for what I did, was battalion commanders or brigade commanders. These are people that manage 1,000 to 5,000 people, right, between the two ranks. These guys wanted to know, uh, had four tasks. One task was protect the force. How do you keep everybody safe? That for sure is right on point for me. Then there was uh, teach and train the local forces. And so you had to look for, like, is this working? You know, are we establishing the government? There's um, close with and destroy the enemy. Okay, great. That makes sense to me. I know how to collect on those things. And the last thing was enable the enablers that help them teach and train the local government people, whether it's cops or army or government people, you know, in partnership. So I'm trying to collect anything that involves those things directly. And that might sound like a bunch of nothing, but I tell you what, that's the commander's job is to get these things done. So anything I can do to accentuate their success or to highlight danger um, was gold to these guys, right? And where I focused my effort was how do we get better at doing our job so we can accomplish these harder missions like stabilize the country, stabilize the government, legitimize the government, because that's way harder than close with and destroy the Taliban. The Taliban wouldn't even really fight us. Al-Qaeda would barely show up. We had gunfights. They would blow us up and I would try to prevent that. But that's that's not even a, that's a needle in haystacks to, to prevent that from happening, right? And so what if we're getting it wrong every day, which is what was happening? How can I get us to get it wrong less often? And how can I identify small wins that we could get right and convert that towards the government? So that's sort of what my uh, my program was. And so you joined in 94. You were out uh, as an active duty soldier by, it sounds like, 99? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then I did yeah. a couple of years of reserve time. So you were just getting out of the reserves when 9-11 happened? That's right. Yeah, I was I was in the reserves. I was actually the first guy 
for my unit to get back to the unit after 9-11 because I worked just a couple miles down the road. So when that second plane hit, I'm like, no, this isn't an accident. This is terrorism. I went to my boss and said, I got to go. And he's like, I know you do. And I took off and I was I was there. I was at my unit before the uh, first tower fell. Wow. So not long at all. And um, and then, yeah, my life changed and I started doing um, it drew me completely back into the military. It took a little bit of time. But um, I spent the next eight years directly uh, from 04 to 2012. I spent the, the next, those next years working directly on trying to solve the problems that we were trying that we were having in Iraq and Afghanistan. And you were doing that as a as a federal employee. A mix, a mix. I deployed once as an army guy right after 9/11 in October slash November, and then I got out, uh, much to the army chagrin. And I came back as a contracted employee. So I was working for a company that held a contract doing Intel work specific to what I did. And then you got to keep in mind, too, there were not enough people like me, right? Because we weren't in a war. We weren't in a war. We knew nothing about the people. So it needed a lot of people like me. So I was able to do things that I'm, were probably outside of the law now. But back then it was like, hey, it's wartime. Gloves are off. We're going we're gonna to play in the gray area a lot. And then I, I did come back and work as a federal employee. And again, I got to go outside the wire primarily whenever I wanted to, which is just about daily as a federal employee working for, I guess I was working for the Department of Army or, or the uh, defense. Yeah, you were, you were probably working for uh, all kinds of alphabet uh, organizations under the uh, Department of Defense. Yeah, I mean, all that stuff, right? All cross reports. And so if someone from any agency said, hey, Pete, who do you know? Or can we talk to this guy? The answer would always be yes. Or here's the information I have, right? And so you're always, I supported USAID. I supported State Department. All kinds of people would take my information and and it would make them potentially, I would offer it. I don't know, I can't say it made them smarter or more effective, but that information was there. So let's go back to your 01 deployment. Obviously, that was Afghanistan because we weren't we didn't go to Iraq until March of 03. Yeah. Uh, uniformed in Afghanistan at the very mm. beginning, we were going after uh I, I think very few people even understood what the Taliban were back then. Uh, but we were going after bin Laden in yeah. Bora Bora. Were, were you part of that initial effort? No, going there? no, no. I deployed. Um, I did not go to Afghanistan until much, much later. So when I deployed, I was on an automatic rotation that we were going to do for the reserves out to a thing called Bright Star, which is on the peninsula of Egypt mm. off to the Sinai. Oh, yeah, side. yeah, yeah. yeah. And so um, we were going to cancel that, but then the army's like, "No, no, we need a, a QRF in theater because we're not even sure what we're going to do yet." Yeah, man, this is like weeks. This is like six weeks later, right? And so uh, we deploy out, and and um, I'm in a transportation unit. That's how I get back into the reserves because you know it never the army never serves itself by being smart. It's just like uh, just this big dumb behemoth. And so. Um, my recruiter's like, yeah, come in and then transfer over. So I was in the middle of transferring over to the Intel unit. They were going to uh, direct commission me and do all these things, right? But at the time, I was in a transportation unit. I was just getting through my MOS uh, classification to become this uh, 88 November, which is like the truck driver manager. Right? So my job was to manage all of the assets in the trucks. I never did that job once. So we deploy, and, and this is a little bit of a long story, but hang in there and it'll, get, I'll get, it'll pay off. So um, we deploy and there's a team of us, like, let's say there's eight people and it's like two, 
two E6s and there's me as an E5 and I'm waiting to get E6 and just, you know, whatever. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm peers with these guys, if not more, because I've actually deployed before. And so these guys go out and they cook it up. And they're like, I have morning shift. Or I have night shift. And Pete, you have nothing. And so I'm like, whoa, hold on. That's going to hurt my rating if I'm not doing anything. You treat me like an E4. I'm like, you know what? Okay. Okay. Because they, they made it clear they didn't like me because I would, we would do things like go to the motor pool and do uh, maintenance on our vehicles. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? Nobody's doing this right. Where's your damn manual? You're supposed to work out of the manual. Nobody's got a manual. All these vehicles are fucked because you guys don't ever do anything. Let's do this right. And they hated the fact that I was trooping up the NCOs because they were behind, you know, on all, they were lax. But that was the old reserves, right? It's not the new reserves. Anyhow, um, so I'm like, okay, I don't have a job and I'm not really in charge of anybody and that sucks for me. So, okay, great. And they, they're giggling at my face. Like they're like, ha ha ha, you, you don't have a job. And I'm like, yeah, I guess you're right. And so what do I do? I go over to the counterintelligence office and I knock on the door. <laughs> I'm like, hey, I'm a counterintelligence agent. I'm not gainfully employed. And uh, the lieutenant there is like laughed in my face also. Apparently he was laughing at Pete in the face day. And, and, I, and uh, I'm like, well, let me just poke my head in and see if I know somebody. It's a small community, as you know. And he's like, yeah, knock yourself out. So I poke my head in. And sure enough, there's a guy who I'd worked with in the regular army just a couple of years previously. And he says, hey, Pete. And I look back at the LT and I walk in and he's like, I got the best job for you, dude. This is the chief. This is the chief warrant officer talking to me. He's like, you have no responsibility and you get to go out and just make sure my guys who are rookies who are green, make sure that they just don't screw it up. And if you see something, draw their attention to it and just coach, just coach. And so I had to wear civilian clothes. And every day I had to go from the Sinai Peninsula where we were at into Cairo. And so and we would go on these antiquity tours. And so my job was to ensure that this, the counterintelligence assets on the ground who are protecting these MWR tours, keep in mind, this is October of 2001. We don't know who's who, what's what, what's going to be attacked next, right? So everybody's on high alert. And so I'm just kind of managing these guys with no responsibility to do any, any of that stuff, uh, any of the hard work, right? And so that's what we did every day. We would go to the, the pyramids and we would go to the museums. And because I'm good at my job, the guy I connect with is is Dr. Zawas. Do you know who Dr. Zawas is? Mm -mm, I don't. He's the guy that wears the tan hat on History Channel whenever they talk about Egypt. He was like their director of, of, of uh, antiquities. He's and the so guy. Me, right. And so that was like my best buddy. He's like, Pete, you're the best guy. I love this. You ask all the right questions. You obviously love what we, who we are. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And so that guy would take me on my own little private tours. And that was great and fun for me. But also keep in mind, I'm Hawkeyeing everything. Like, what is what is normal look like here? And I can ask him any question. And so he wasn't a source, right? But but he was my friend and I'm doing my job. And I'm like, this is incredible experience for me to be able to find this person who's an international figure. And and now I've got I've gained access. Like what's what's better for a spy than to be able to do this to find out. Like, how does how do things work here? Like, hey, show me how this all works in terms of security. What's your guys' stance? You know, and so I was able to go out and do this while I also explored all of Egypt's great antiquities. And and uh, Dr. Zoas was so, like, having such a great time that he's like, let me show all of you guys this other incredible thing that I wouldn't normally show anybody. So we got, every time we went on a tour, they didn't know it, but all the army people, military people got this special access tour because I had made such a great relationship with Dr. Zawas. Pete, that is a, a priceless experience. Priceless. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. It's so true. Mm -hmm. oh and the whole God. thing is, I was working the whole time. I was legitimately working. So, 
And that sounds like he's not really working, but that's the thing with my work, right? If I'm doing my job, it doesn't look like I'm working. It looks like I'm having a great time and the person I'm talking to is having fun. And I'm not being disingenuous. I'm not trying to trick Dr. Zawas. I'm genuinely interested in Egyptology. And so you've got someone that's passionate about your field, of course, you know, and who knows a lot, right? I knew a lot. I knew a lot of the names. I knew a lot of the histories. And so he's like pushing me. I'm like, tell me, tell me more. Tell me something I don't know, you know? And uh, what professor, what guy who, who his job is antiquities in his home country, what guy isn't going to love that? And so he oh. did. He ate it up. He absolutely ate it up, especially somebody who's not Egyptian to, to eat it up like that. But right. I, I imagine most of the world didn't have ac access to a guy like that. No, no, no. I'm, I'm sure it was because he was trying to ensure that we had a good experience with the army. Because, you, know, you gotta, again, you got to keep in mind, it's not even 60 days after 9-11. You know, there's rubble on the ground still that they're still picking up when we get there. And so he wants to show us what Egypt is and what Egypt isn't. And so he was taking special care of us. And and I didn't realize at the time, because we don't we don't have that kind of hindsight when you're in the moment. But my job was also to allow him and Egypt to be this place that was for America and not against it. And and that we were able to look past this atrocity and and not look at a people and say all of you people are like this and i, I think i think i did that by my nature but um you know I, I can't say for sure and i would love to meet him again i almost he actually came to my town and i had a scheduling thing where i wasn't going to be in town otherwise i would have done it and i would have walked right up to him and i don't know if he would have remembered me but i probably could have jarred his memory um and i, I want to meet him someday just to have the conversation now 20 years later Oh my gosh! Yeah, to your point around, he, he def probably desperately wanted to prove that not everybody from that part of the world or, or from that culture was the same way. And, That's right. Uh, yeah, you experiencing that makes you worldly, and I encourage anybody uh, to get out there, and mix it up with the world, and you realize that uh, we're humans are not homogenous. We may be a little bit tribal at times, but uh, just because uh, we share a culture doesn't mean we all behave the same way. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. So how many total deployments did you have? Gosh, a lot. I've got a thousand combat patrols under my belt. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wait. Yeah. So when you say combat patrol, you're talking about you, you were part of a battalion. Maybe you're going out with a company or even a, a platoon size element. It sounds like at yeah. times you went out by yourself. Yeah. On occasion, I did. And that wasn't the norm. And I don't want to give people the impression that I was doing this really nilly too. Uh, you know, when you, when you're in my field, it's very hard to get good because, uh, and you know, from your military experience, when you deploy out to a place or come back or whatever, you never go back in that same capacity. By then you're in a different unit, a different part of a unit. You've got a job that puts you behind a desk. So to go out constantly, you just get better and better. And whenever I talk to a, a peer collector, I'll say, how many uh, months did it take for you to really get good at the job? And they'll say something like 18 months. And I'm like, how many months did you spend deployed in that capacity? And they'll say 18 months. And then I get to say, what if you tripled that time? Would you be better? And they're like, yeah, it'd be a lot better. Because really you think about how many times you get to go out and do it. And it's really, it's hardly every 18 months. Even if you're going out every day, you're so limited because you're in the army. I was with the army when I got the most of my deployment done. And there's a magic in that where I, I have to develop trust with the unit. But also as I do that, I get this unfettered access that people who are low ranking and inexperienced could never get. So I became this high powered collector 
and I would I would gain access to these commanders. I'm actually going to have one of the commanders I worked with at the very peak of my ability before I, I finally stopped deploying. Um, he's going to be on the show, and we're going to talk a lot about this because I was such a unique asset. I, all I did was amplify and accelerate what they were going to do anyhow, right? Because I'd seen it all. I've been unit to unit to unit. And so I learned that whole process. So when you look at like someone who's a collector, uh, if you can find someone who's good, and we all think we're good, but if you can find someone who's like, I'm a black belt and I'm not trying to compete with anybody, but I'll out collect all of you guys combined. And that's a bold thing to say. Reality is they just, I'm a black belt. They're not, you know, it's like, I get it. You're an orange belt. Hey, you're great. You know, when you double your knowledge, you'll still be behind me. And that's a hard thing for people who do this job to gather because we're all smart. We're all doing something dangerous. We all want to be great about it. We're all studying all the time. It's just, I've got more experience. Most people do. So that's what that thousand patrols equals. It's just a load of experience, a load of mistakes and a load of, I've built elegance into my system. So I'm not like, everything's not crooked and angled. It's all smooth now. Uh, out of all the commanders you interacted with, how many understood exactly what you could bring uh, to the table and how many were essentially clueless? It's one of the hardest parts of my job and they all get there, right? And what I had to learn how to do, and this is the commanders taught me this. I learned how to speak commander because when I was in, when you're in and you're like an E4, even a lieutenant, you know how this goes. You're like, that's the boss. That's the colonel. That's the full bird, light colonel, whatever it's going to be. And, and uh, there's really a separation between you and them, especially as an E4, right? There's just so much distance between those guys. So those guys became my peers. And I'm like, I am a special advisor to you. So here's here's what they taught me. My job to, to go to a unit was like, give a brief resume. Hey, I've been here. I've been, I've been deployed for, you know, four years. I go outside the wire all the time. My job is to come here and help you. They don't know how to put me to work. Even if I was a counterintelligence agent in the army, they still would never know what we do. They just it's too hard to understand how to work us. And so it's my job to say, here's what's going to happen. And so what I would do is I would say, here's what's going to happen. You're going to put me under a captain. I'm going to work. And in about three weeks, the light will go on. You'll see what I do. And you'll see that I'm valuable. And then in three months, you're going to look at me. I'm going to look at you. And you're going to say these words, Pete, you're our number one asset. Like you amplify everything we do in such a degree that I don't know how we would have done this without you. You're not going to have to say that because you and I both now know that this is going to happen. And so I swear to God, every single commander, look, and the commander said to say that. And they also said to say, quote, Napoleon, because we all love it. So say audacity, audacity, audacity. It's so like your peers have told me to tell you this audacity, audacity, audacity. I've just predicted the future and putting it on you to give me access to the battlefield so that you can reap the reward. And they're all like, all right, when are you leaving? That sounds good to me. Yeah. And then when I would show up three months later, they'd be like, you motherfucker. <laughs> you know, they went, they look back. You don't got to say it. I would say, you don't got to say it. We already had this conversation. Should I just sit on the couch whenever I want? And they're like, yep. Yep. <laughs> and I told them what I needed from them, which was access. And then direct me because I'm pinpoint, right? And you know, you've got commander, you got, you got guidance behind you. I'm pinpointed on where I'm on the ground. My job is to give you the ground truth. And if you don't like what I'm giving you, because it's too much of this, too much of that, you've got to tune me and you got to provide top cover. You got to be willing to get your ass chewed, not because I've gone off and got drunk or anything like that, but because I'm going to piss someone off because a lot of what I find out is stuff about us and our incapacity to mm. do the job right, which I know as the boss, you're desperate to learn about that. And I'm not going to ever tell you what to do. I'm just going to point out what's not working and what I think you need to know. 
And I'm going to try to do, I'm going to try to give you information that nobody else is giving you. And if, if I'm delivering that, you know, you look, and again, you've got guide on, so you know. If I'm able to give that to you as a commander, you're like, oh, give Pete all the access he wants. How long, how long did it typically take you to get to that point? Three weeks to get their like trust. I'm like, I get it. And then that, again, that three months of like, you just continue to hit home runs. You continue to piss people off and you give, here's the thing is all these guys are like, you don't have to tell me how to fix the problem. Just identify it. I've got all these resources. And some, some of them be like, Hey, I give, please tell me what you think we should do. And I'd be like, no way. Cause the staff will kill me. And then they'd say, I own the staff. They are mine. They will not kill you. I'm like, okay. Cause I've been through this and these guys try to stick a knife in my back. Cause I'm out in the staff room and he's like, don't worry about it. I got you. You know, and I'm like, you got to protect me going up. By the way, I'm also a communication channel going up. Would you like me to go up to the general and just talk? Because I'll, I'll go in the room. You know, look, if you're at a division staff room, this is really boring for everybody else, but you'll get this. And they're planning on things that have no root in the ground. And you put a guy like me in there, if if I know how to do it. And here's, here's one of the things I would always ask. I would say, is this the kind of meeting that we can contribute? Because I'm, I'm new here. I want to make sure that we allowed to speak candidly or should I just be quiet? Because, you know, you know, they're going to go, oh, no, no, we want to hear what you have to say. I'm like, okay. <laughs> uh, and it would be something to say. Look, and I'm not like being a dick. There would be, um, let's say the division commander is trying to decide if they should build project A, B, or C, right? And everybody's like, which one do we build? Which, which one do we advise the boss on? And there's other generals in the room. There's all kinds of high-ranking people. There's probably some uh, GS-15 or SES, you know, poll ad in there. A lot, a lot of politics, about. man. A lot of, a politics. lot of politics. And there I'm in the back row. They don't know who I am. And I raise my hand. And then I'll say, has anyone asked Governor Mahmoud? And then I'll look at me like, why would we do that? I'm like, I don't know. That's where I would start. I would ask him, not the boss. You're, you're the guy. In, says, you're, you're the guy in every movie who's not supposed to talk, but you raise your hand and you're like, "Oh, yeah, that, that's the answer." By the way, yeah. And here's the thing: is they don't know what to do with me, and because a lot of times you do that in the staff room because you want to make that known. Like, hey, has anyone done this super obvious thing? Like, we would do these assessments of Afghanistan, right? And we would say, "How's everything going?" It's once a quarter. It's called the R the RSSA, and that the A is for assessment. And every time I get in there, I'd be like, "Raise my hand." He asked Pete, what do, you, what do you want to ask? Like, hey, uh, we're going to evaluate the Afghan government and decide how it's doing. Where are the Afghans? <laughs> they're like, well, it's a classified meeting. I'm like, could we just, I don't know, unclassify it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, but kids, and so it doesn't fix anything in the meeting. The meeting is going to be in the meeting. I shut up and I sit there and I just pay attention after that. But when I go to Chow, Believe me, those majors and colonels grab me and they're like, all right, what do you know? What's going on? Thank you for saying all of that. Because we're all trying to do a better job, but you have to have someone that can help you see it. And they can't see it when they're at even brigade or division. You know, it's just, it's too hard to do. And again, that doesn't sound like spy stuff, but here I am talking to the boss and he's like, please give me more, you know? Yeah, th those guys are overwhelmed with all kinds of things that uh, the typical person can't appreciate. Right, right. And so they need you. They need you to speak up. They need you to be bold. And uh, right. yeah, three, three weeks to three months, that's pretty impressive. Three weeks especially. It's, I, listen, I've been kicked off a lot of camps. I've been fired a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, the last time I almost got fired, there was a, there's this thing called a wheat seed distro where we give out like this seed to the farmers so that they can grow a, a, a crop. 
Usually it's grain, like wheat or something like that. And then uh, we think the Afghans are stupid. So I hear these things coming out of, these are like 06s. These are colonels. The next step up for these guys is general. And these guys are seeing things like, make sure these Afghan farmers don't understand that this is not for eating. I don't want them grinding it up and eating it for bread. And I'm like, okay, I, I will. And I'm almost laughing because I'm like, I'm going to go tell the farmers. And we've been here for 10 years, by the way. You think this is, okay, all right. Yeah, please let me. So I go work on the wheat seed distro because obviously we need help, right? And um, this general, again, not general, uh, this colonel who runs the ag side of things, he writes this whole uh, blistering uh, email about the, the guy that I'm working with, the governor, and about how he's corrupt and he's part of the Taliban and everything else. So I respond. And he did like a big group, and I was in the group. So I respond to all of them. And I said, unlike Colonel Johnson, um, I actually talk to this guy every day, and here's the deal with this guy. And I laid it out. He did not like that. You embarrassed not, Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and look, I did it publicly. Here's the thing. Um, I don't know how else to do that, right? I could have gone behind his back and gone to the boss or gone to the DCO probably more appropriately, which the DCO is the number two guy. Uh, and I could have said, hey, there's a problem here. But sometimes you got to seize the moment and you're just like, you know, whatever. And I didn't think it'd be that bad, but it was bad. It was really bad. And so that that guy, who the ag colonel got pissed off and he's like, I want him off the camp. And so the DCO, also in 06, says, hey, to my boss, hey, Pete's got to go. He can't stay here anymore. You're going to have to fire him and kick him off the camp. And my boss, thank God, had an ass that could be chewed all day. And he's like, yep, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. Yep. Mm -hmm, yep. 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 And then he just said a couple of words. He said, you know, to the to the colonel, he's like, this is the, this is the guy who was the number two guy for the commander, not the guy that I pissed off. And he says to him, I will kick Pete off this camp tomorrow. You just tell me where he was wrong. Mm. And he looks at the e email and he's like, God damn it. And he started rubbing his head. He's like, started rubbing his head. He's like, God damn it. I got to go take care of this other colonel. But, but that improved my status, right? Because even though I wasn't tactful, I was right. Yeah. And, and right matters. Tact, tact is not important. Uh, right. Doing what you're doing. Yeah. And if I wouldn't have written like three keywords, I started thing off, unlike Colonel Johnson, if I would have said, <laughs> you know, let me rebut. But, you know, how do you know? Like, how do you know? So you just, we had, I would piss people off all the time and I would get these nasty emails. And then I would just say, here are the responses. By the way, this is going to the boss. I'm going to show, like, if you think I'm wrong, I'm glad to discuss it, but you haven't even read the whole report, you know, and they just start going. So that tells you like how broken our system is. And so that doesn't sound like espionage. There's plenty of stuff that happens outside the wire. But if we're fucked up, we, we can't improve anything else outside the wire, right? And so I spent a lot of time trying to get us a little smoother, a little slower, a little more deliberate, a little more accurate with our stuff. And I never had a commander who I worked with said, no, we don't ever need that. You know, they were like, I just want to get two things right. I've They've all deployed before at this point. They've all been through it and seen all the waste. And they're like, yeah, can we just get two things right this deployment? And two, honestly, is a high number. Like, what actually worked? What's going to be here in five years? Not a damn thing. Yeah, I mean, your your point about if you can't get it straight inside the unit, you, how can you help anybody else? I mean, that is extremely powerful, and a lot of people don't want to think about that. But you've got to start at, at home base and then expand from there. And oh, by the way, one of my favorite sayings from being in the army is "slow is fast." I love yeah. that. Yeah. And this is all deliberate work and it's all fraught with errors. You are going to get covered in mud before you get across that stream. I know you see the path. I know you're going to step on every rock. 
I'm just telling you right now, you are going to fuck it up. Can I help you fuck up less? You know, or, that's or really what when, I was, you do, when you do screw up, hey, let's learn from it. Yeah. And I made mistakes all the time. I mean, that's why I got good. I'm like, and, and so one of the things, there were two things that I would do when I got to a unit or a unit got to me is I would look at what they briefed on the wall and I'd be like, okay, these things are all wrong. These are all challengeable assumptions. And then the other thing is, is I would hear people in the military say things. And I'm like, that's an indicator that there's a problem. Afghans are stupid. Iraqis are lazy. These guys are this. These guys are that. If I heard those things, I'm like, that person is a problem. Yep. And until we can get that person tuned up. And you can't go to the boss and say, this guy's a problem. You have to say, here are some problems that I'm seeing, you know, with what's going on. I don't ever point my finger directly at the people. The team, sure. But like when there's when they're briefing, we've gone out. And we've inoculated the goats and all of the farmers went, yay. And the government is now closer to the people. I go to the farmer and I'm like, what happened last? Because I would, I would go after the op a lot of times. What happened here a week ago? What are you talking about? What's the most memorable thing that's happened in this valley in the last week? Oh, yeah. When Ricky, he he shot Dave. And I'm like, Ricky shot Dave? I don't know about it. Tell me about that. No, like, oh, yeah, Ricky and Dave got into a gunfight. You know, and I'm like, huh, no one knows about this. So Ricky and Dave got into a He's a two-farm. I don't know who Ricky and Dave are, you know. But he's like, this is the most memorable thing that happened. And so you get this question. I'm like, holy shit. I just found out about this gunfight. But what happened from that? Oh, it settles an old thing that, you know. But Okay, great. So now I, I found out about conflict outside the camp. And I'm like, what about that thing with the goats? And I'm like, thing with the goats, thing with the goats, thing with the goats. No, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, the army came out. And the uh, the Afghan the Afghan ag guy came out. And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I saw you there at that. Yeah. Yeah. You guys all gave shots to the goats. Like, no, no, no. The government did that. No, no, the army did that. I'm like, what do you mean the army did that? The government did that. You saw the guy from the, I don't know who that guy is, but he's your ag guy. I don't know who that guy is. And so all of that, and you get this, all of that is data for the boss. Nobody knows who the ag guy is. Everybody thinks we did it. And the most important thing was not us coming out. So have we moved them towards the government? No. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. We we have a lot of uh, ready-made excuses like they're, centuries behind us in terms of uh, wh- whether it's innovation or technology or whatever. And, sure. and some of, there's some truth to that, but yeah. there's some really basic things that are always true. And uh, we, we probably missed a lot of that. when we're. Can, can I just say this too? Like when you say things like that, it's true. Like I'm around people that their living is from the stone age. This is, this is a great story. This is, this is perfectly illustrated what I call the spaceship versus the ground truth. Right. And so my unit, respects me. Everybody gets my reports. <clears throat> There's all kinds of hundred people plus on my reading list. I go around and I'm like, Hey, did you get my reading list? Hey, did you get my reading list? What, what am I writing? That's impacting you. Nothing, Pete, your reports don't really do anything for me. Are you reading them? Cause be careful because the boss is going to be asking questions about what I'm writing. And that, that, that would make that major pay attention. Wait, he's going to ask about this. And I'm like, I'm just telling you, he's talking to me about stuff. And when I'm hearing my words come out on the briefings, like these, okay, now I'm having an impact, right? And so yeah. I got to warn these guys, like, don't be behind on this. I know you get a lot of emails. At least read my bluff and see if, you know, so you're familiar. Anyhow, we're, uh, I'm trying to remember what I was going to say. <laughs> oh, um, wait, nope, I lost it. It I happens to me all, Pete, this happens all the time for me, at least once a day, and it'll come yeah. back to here in, in a couple of minutes. While, while you're trying to uh, subconsciously recall that, Let's talk about the podcast. Yeah, by, by, by the way, before we talk about your podcast, I am I love the fact that when you finish school, you're like, I'm going to be a radio and or TV guy, and it didn't work out, and you end up doing – it's not the complete opposite, but it is very different. 
Yeah, it is. It is. And I, I love it. I wish it paid more money, but I love it. It, it has changed my life for the better. And in so many ways, I, I get to have incredible conversations like this. I get to have incredible conversations with other people who can blow my mind. You know, um, I can't remember his name right now off the top of my head, but Jacques Cousteau's grandson has been on my show. And he basically is Jacques Cousteau today, right? Yeah. Um, it's not Philippe, but it's a French name. Anyhow, um, he's talking to me about the things he does. He's from a completely different world than I am. I remember my story. Let me tell you the rest of my story. So I, I deal with the spaceship and the ground truth, right? Yeah. So everybody knows my work, and they know that I'm really knowledgeable about this one area. And they're focused on this because the boss is like, we're focusing on this area. And that's why I'm there. And so this guy from the State Department lines me up in his sights. He's like, and shoots me. And he goes, hey, Pete, what's the number one TV channel that valley? I'm like, oh, that's, that's a really specific question, Dennis. And he, he wasn't trying to get me, but he wasn't not trying to get me, right? He's really trying to challenge me open in front of everybody. And I said, hey, uh, Dennis, no electricity in that valley. They don't watch TV. The only thing you have for electricity are a couple of lighted uh, solar-powered lights that come on. There's like four of them in the entire valley. There's there's no other, there's no TV there. Nobody knew that and it blew all their minds because in their mind, all of these people are watching TV and they're getting the feed from PSYOPs and everybody else, right? How did and they so, not know that? Because Pete wasn't there to tell them. Wow. You wow. know, and so you're like, you're trying to change a reality. You don't even choose to know it, right? And so that's that's why like, Someone like me, even though I'm not saying where are the bombs and all this other kind of stuff, I'm giving you information as a commander. You're like, what in the fuck do we know? You know, like I would love to get the um, request for information. Hey, Pete, how many schools are in this valley? And I'm like, wrong question. First off, who's the partner with that Afghan elder? They should be asking that guy directly because that guy should know. And if he doesn't know, that begats other questions. Why doesn't he know? And the real question you should be asking is, how many schools are in the valley? What are the names of the schools? What kids go from what districts and valleys? What curriculum is being taught? Is it being taught? I mean, it's like all these questions. And we're asking, this is years and years in, how many schools are in the valley? Well, you lost, man. You're losing yeah. right now. Like that question, that's like a white belt coming in to fight a black belt and doing like karate chop. And you're like, yeah, you're not only are you losing, you're a joke on the battlefield. Well, and the reality is for questions like that, that answer is not changing a whole lot over a five-year period, right? Yeah, yeah. And you can't have so much institutional amnesia that you can't keep track of that and ask better questions five years from now. We know that there are five schools. And by the way, when you show up, hey, we're going to come to your school and we're going to take a look at everybody. That is a performance. That's the thing I learned. I didn't know all this, right? It's a performance. So all the kids come and show up. Hey, we're kids at school. Everybody hands out candy and soccer balls. That's all great. Hey, Pete, this is Pete talking to Pete's self. Hey, Pete, go back to that school in five days. See what's going on. And you know what happens. You know what happens. And you know what the commander does? He fucking looks around the room. And he's like, which one of you motherfuckers are contributing? I know what Pete's doing. He's going out and trying to help us see things. Get off Pete's back. Give him access. Let him go out and do his job. Because he's telling us things that we have no idea about. And they're blowing my damn mind. Yeah. And that performance is uh, of limited and short-term value in that it right. made people feel good about themselves. But it didn't yeah. do anything enduring. And if they are there five days later in school and they're learning things, guess what? I can now add, I can say, one, this school seems to be working. I talked to this. I promise I would talk to the teacher. 
tell me what's going on. What's it like here? What's the number one problem you should be able to solve with us today, right now? The smallest little problem. And if it's something like pencils, guess what? Go to the government. I'm sure we're going to get you some pencils, you know, and so I can fix it. But they were never in the school, right? Yeah. So like the first problem is, is because they're in the Stone Age, right? What is possible here? Is it possible to have kids show up at school? No. Oh, okay. Pete, Pete will ask, why? You know, and then you ask and you start to understand what it takes to get kids to go to school. That's our that's our task list right there. There's the implied task. Kids aren't going to school because X, X plus one, X plus three and carrot. And you're like, fucking carrot. Who thought about that? You know, like it's not even in the thing. We, how, do, how do you even put that into an? I, I don't know what to do. How do we solve carrot? Maybe you don't. Maybe you leave carrot alone. You let the Afghans handle that. What would you like us to do about carrot? And they're like, I'm using carrot just to be clear. I'm using carrot because it doesn't fit on the algebraic equation. And so you go to the Afghans, you're like, what do we do about this? Do we do anything? Do you guys do that? Who fixes that? And then they'll be like, oh, you leave that alone. That's not your business. That's our business. How do I help? I don't just leave it alone. Okay, great. So you tell the boss, when it comes to carrot, hands off, we leave it alone. I'll monitor and let you know if anything changes. Yeah. Well, because you're there to, in theory, help them, right? So you, you need to right. understand how they function yeah. and what they need and what they care about. Cool. All right. Podcast. How'd you start it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> back to Maury. Uh, I came back from Afghanistan and I wanted to tell some of these incredible stories. And then uh, we listened to my buddy John and I, who I started the show with, and we started listening to podcasts. We were handymen. So we we're painting, building, taping, cutting, whatever it was that we had to do that day. And so we would put a podcast on. We would listen to Rogan and Jay Moore, um, this other guy, Mick Gillette, who was a, a writer. And um, you know, we would just keep listening to these guys and, and going, okay, okay, this is how we do this. And, and between he and I, we had such a powerful network and, and a, a no fear of asking. We started booking incredible guests from, from day one. And so we got good fast. And so it was fun to do and hasn't stopped being fun. It's work much more so now than in the old days. It's very rare that I get like excited about a certain guest or anything, but that's how I got started. We just got started. We started listening, learning, and then we started making mistakes and doing it in real life. No fear of asking. I mean, how do you get a tier one guest? Like you have to know somebody who knows somebody who knows that tier one guest, right? Yeah. Or there's several ways, right? And that is one of them. Um, the other one is sometimes you just ask. And I don't know. It's got to be over 100 times in the 1500 shows that I've done where I've asked someone who had no business booking and I've said, Hey, uh, I would, and I have a certain way I ask, right. But, um, Hey, would you, would you be on my show? And they go, you know, it's funny. You should ask. I've been thinking about going on and doing a podcast. Right. And especially in the early part, like they didn't know what they were like, I've been thinking I ought to do these things. So yeah, you asked, let's go, you know? And the other thing I do that's a little bit different is I'll deploy myself. So I'll say like, we got Jay Moore on our show pretty early. He, he became a, a friend ultimately, but I'm like, Hey Jay, we're coming down to LA. And I know you said yes to, or no to ever being on the show. And sometimes, yes, I, I'm just going to come to you. You tell me a day that works for you. And I'll just drive down to LA. He's like, well, if you're going to drive down here, I'm not going to tell you, no, I'm going to have you in my office. And so we were in the Fox tower in downtown Hollywood basically. And, uh, and we did a show with him, right? Because I look I and one of the things I picked up from the Army is deployable and mobile, right? And then be professional and a little bit rugged. And all of a sudden, you get you get opportunity to do things. And here's what happens when you go to someone's house, for example. Like I went to, in Malibu is where, I don't know if you know, uh, Laird Hamilton and his wife, Gabby, Gabby Reese. 
Yeah. Very famous people. Right. And yep. so when you go to their house, they turn into the host. They're like, Hey, we're Hawaiian people, Ohana and all that stuff. So can I give you some of our shepherd's pie that we're making for dinner? And you're like, Oh gosh, no, you've got to give me your dinner. They're like, well, you got to have something. You can't come here and have nothing. And I'm like, okay. You know? And so think about that dynamic because I'm there as their guest now. And I'm going to ask them these questions, but from a totally different platform, as opposed to, you know, over the internet's fine. Right. But it's not that. And so I got really good at doing that. And that also kind of changed how I saw everything. And really it just was in line. It was just in line with what I was already going to do. You know, that's awesome, man. Uh, so when I looked at your internet and I've maybe been stalking you a little more than I should, <laughs> you, you list music, performance, art, culture, conscious, conscious and combat. Uh, and then there's this life in italics and bold after that. Is your show more than that? Or do you try to limit it to the, and they're all big topics, but do you try to yeah. limit it to those topics? No, I mean, as long as it falls under life, like my, I, I didn't ask him, but I was calling my friend Blake and I've known Blake for, it'll be 20 years here in a few, few couple, like two years, it'll be 20 years I've known him. And um, sometimes I just want to have my friends on and just talk to them because they're fascinating. They're funny. They've got enough interesting stories. Or I just want to hang out with my friend. And so sometimes I'll do that. Sometimes we're going to talk about a social issue. Sometimes we're going to explore something. Like I had a second right conversation between someone who was anti-second right, second amendment and someone who was pro. And uh, to both of their credits, they're both glad to have a healthy conversation because they we had the same goal, right? It was reduction of harm. How we go about it, they're going to disagree about. But if you can have that conversation without calling each other an idiot or uh, a, a trumper or a snowflake or all that kind of stuff, then, then you can get somewhere on these hard arguments. And maybe my show isn't going to be the one that does it. But but we want these kind of things where we can go, wow, there's really not a whole lot of difference between how we see this. How do we reduce harm? How do we work together to reduce harm? We'll worry about the amendments and and access to guns a little later, or whatever it's going to be, right? But but we definitely agree that we want to reduce harm. So how do we do that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point and, and a reminder, Pete, that uh, we tend to jump into this is the way I think we should solve the problem. And actually, the people in the debate don't even agree on what the problem is. Man, I tell you what, it's so true. I have a saying that I developed from, from all of my time, right? And it goes along the same thing. You cannot, assume, you cannot presume to improve the condition of something you refuse to understand the condition of. Like you can't. And, and then uh, I listened to Bono's book and he said something way better than mine. Mine's kind of wordy and I'm purposely like, oh, what? Like, that's kind of the point. But his was, uh, it's, I guess it's like a, I don't know, maybe an Indian saying or a Pakistan saying. It's like, uh, if you want to give a man a haircut, make sure he's in the room. Like, <laughs> well, there's that too. That's more clever than mine. But it's the same thing. You can't, yeah. you can't presume to improve something if you refuse to understand it. You just can't. And we love to do that. We love to come in with the answer. We love to come in with assumptions. And the minute you get in there, you realize way more complex than I thought. Way more complex. Yeah. M most people that, that I've encountered, and I imagine your experiences are similar, they, they want to be the smart person in the room. They, they, sure. they want to keep their ego intact. And sometimes you have to be vulnerable to get to a better place. Yeah. I say this all the time, uh, especially when I talk about being deployed like if someone was from the state department or the kennedy school of government they were already like dum, 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 three three rungs down for me and i'm like you're you're going to be the problem i don't have to even worry about it you're going to display that to me soon because they're just they're too damn smart they're so smart 
that they don't understand what they don't understand. And it's impossible for And you can say that to them and they'll reject that reality instantly. I have this, I write, I write about these things all the time in my medium uh, uh, blog space that I do. I don't write on there all the time, but I have these thoughts. I'm like, these are important. Let me get this out. And one of those things is like, when the smarter you are, the more educated you are, the least incredible your ideas are. Like they're just terrible. You know, um, you have to understand that correlation goes up, goes way past one. I'm using like some statistical nonsense examples, but that's the whole point is like, you think one is like the, the end all be all of like, um, you know, being syncopated, but really you can't think that way. You have to think like, what's possible here? What, you know, what can we do today? What small thing can we do? How many mistakes can we do today? And then not, and reduce those the next day. Like, it's just this crazy calculus that doesn't make sense. And you try to solve these things so that if you went to the Kennedy School of Government or you went to Georgetown, I'm just not going to be impressed because you've read a lot of books from people who haven't done this stuff either. Nobody has done this. Nobody's gone to Afghanistan and civilized these people. Nobody. It's just not a thing. And so when you hear people talk about it, they, like they talk as if they've done something. Here, here's, a, here's a great test. If I was to gather a bunch of Afghan vets and I said, how many of you worked with an interpreter? A bunch of hands would go up. How many of you were below average at working with an interpreter? No hands would go down or like go up. They'd all stay down. Like, well, how can you all be above average? How many of you were trained? How many of you went through a two-week-long course to work with an interpreter? Oh, nobody? So, so yes, you don't know. Institutionally, you don't know if you're good at it or not. No one's assessed you. No one's ever said, hey, you're a go at this station. Here's your interpreter badge. Nobody's ever done that. You have to do that to drive a five-ton. You have to do that to fire an M60 or a, a saw or anything. You have to like get qualified in this thing. This is another human talking to another human in a language you don't understand. And you don't have to do anything complicated to make sure you know what you're doing. Excuse me, this job is way too hard for that. Yeah, that's it's a fantastic point. And by the way, you were talking about Jacques Cousteau's grandson, and then you rem yeah. remember your uh your spaceship and and yeah. thing. So what, what were you gonna say about Jacques' grandson? Oh, he just, he's like, this, he's from this completely different world. You know, he, um, he's trying to show us the ocean, but we don't go in the ocean. Right. So we have this barrier. Okay. Maybe you go into the ocean at the beach. That doesn't count. Like that's like the, the cohesion layer on a glass where you have a bunch of water in it. Like you're playing in that little tiny area. Right. This guy goes down and he, he spends his whole life down there. It's, it's multi-generational for him. And he starts to explain like, this is a closed system. And then you start to talk to other people in that world, and you're like, so there's a thing that I learned about um, on my show. There was a guy, he focused, he's the only guy really in the world that focuses on this. And if he didn't do it, nobody else would. So we all agree that like anything that predated 1970 that we militarily dumped into the ocean or into a river that had access to an ocean, all of that was off the books because it was just too impossible to know about all of it. So every airplane in World War II, every torpedo that went down and every, uh, barrel of oil that sunk anything before like 1970 doesn't count but there it is and it's killing fish and it's changing the genetic makeup of fish in that area right but now we realize this is just one big old bathtub and all that stuff moves around and so when you start to have fish there's a pocket where fish are born with cancer mm. that's that's how they've adapted they've adapted by it as having cancer and so how do you deal with these problems and so when you talk to someone like you know uh Chakusto's grandson you start to get a realization of like how little we know about these regions and how much we we don't care for it at all. And look, we have to find a way to use the ocean as a resource, but also preserve. So you have to like use and conservation have to balance out. But when we're too ignorant to even understand what's there, 
and he's a competing voice with all of the voices worried about the environment. It, it gets you start to understand like, man, I, there's a lot I don't understand about this. And so don't stand too firmly upon your position because it's it's likely not what you think it is. The position. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if there was an entity that was all knowing, they would realize that we are less than one percent of the way of being all knowing. <laughs> As a society, yeah. as a as a world population, right? Yeah, it's it's true. And then you could take that and you can do the same thing with space, with forests, with anything. I, I saw a thing out here um, in California where we had two experts. Both of them are lefties, right? And uh, and I say that just for for context. I, I'm not against lefties. I'm not for. I'm just saying these guys are both the left leaning people. And one guy is like, "You abs." These are both PhDs in forestry and fire. And one of them says. You have to clear all old trees because if you don't, they, they erupt, the fire erupts around them. And the other guy's like, you absolutely have to have to leave those things there because nature demands it. And they're like, okay, you guys are on the same side of the political spectrum and you can't, you opposed directly. But I guarantee you, if we had a conversation with those guys on my show, and so I'm getting back to the show thing, those guys would say, yeah, it's a little more nuanced than that. You know, we actually agree on like, 85% of this. And the stuff in between us, we both admit we don't know enough to know enough. But when you hear this stuff in the news, it look they look like fools because they're saying the opposite thing of each other. And neither one of them knows what the answer is. They just know that I have to continue to study fire and forest to figure out how to minimize. And we've come a long way. And, and you know, they'll have all these other things they can tell you. So as soon as you dive into the ocean, any depth at all, you realize even the people studying it are like, I don't know. I, I, could, I could use a lot more money and a lot more time and a lot more people to get a lot smarter. You know, I'm on, I'm not even on the tip of the iceberg. I'm, I'm on a flag on top of the iceberg waggling around. I could use a lot of help to get more understanding of this. And the moment we realize that and what it takes to fix all of these big social problems, you know, like you can make a better police force. Absolutely. We all have to be ready to spend about three times the amount of money we're spending now. Cause I promise that the training guy in the police station is not like, I wish I could do some training today. You know, <laughs> Like yeah. they, they, they're all maxed out, and you know, and the more you train cops, the more they bust knees and snap tendons and have to retire medically. All that stuff goes up, so the cost is huge. But we don't want to talk about that. We want to talk about how they ought to do better. They need more training. Okay, you ready to pay more in taxes? No. Okay. Well, then, what are we doing? Yeah, we all want the easy button, and then if we don't get the easy button, we want to yell about things. Yeah. Typically. Yeah. 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 And this is all based on stuff that I've learned from deploying, right? I'm not trying to make any kind of a political statement like that at all. I'm just saying if we want to do and solve these social problems better, we have to understand that these are the same social problems that the Greeks and the Sumerians were trying to solve. Maybe different orders, different scales, but things are better than they were in Sumeria, right? We've gotten better. And the problems that we're trying to wrestle with, like homelessness in California, especially, who's it's, it's a multifaceted problem that we can't agree on five things. So how are we going to solve this big thing? So maybe we work on a different problem. I don't know. Yeah. All right. This is a kind of a goofy question, Pete, but uh, out of the 1500 episodes, do you have two or three that uh, you enjoyed the most? Yeah. I mean, it's always the next ones. You know, I've got a really cool one coming up on Friday. There's this author that I met from UC Davis. He's a historian and he writes about conquistadors and people from the age of, of uh, explorer exploration. And he's got this book written about this, um, this navigator, right? And um, it's this guy, his, his name is Lope Martin, and he was Portuguese and Moroccan. And this is, you know, in the 1500s, it's a long time ago. But he was a pot, not a captain, because captain was more of like a, um, 
you had to have money to be a captain. And not because you knew how to run a ship, but because you were trusted with the other guys that had money to like, hey, you're going to be responsible for this. And so they would lead. But the, but the pilot was the guy that actually handled the shipping and the navigating and all that stuff. And so this guy was a, was a fantastic captain, um, I should say a pilot. And he was the first guy to purposefully sail west east to west across the pacific ocean now there's people that have been blown off course there's people we don't know about of course but he in the modern time he was he was part of a group that like one of the things we're going to do is go to the philippines go to japan and then come back and see what that means and that sounds easy but back then they didn't even know the ocean had these swirling currents that you could just sit in and it would take you you know they didn't know how long it would take there's nothing out there to navigate off of um they didn't they had longitude, but didn't know how to like measure the distance. And longitude are the north-south lines, right? And so uh, latitude was easy because you had stars and it all made sense. Longitude didn't make sense, especially when you're on a big old hunk of ocean, like in the Pacific. And so this guy does it. He makes it across. And then right behind him is the next ship that does it. But history loses him because um, politics, kings and queens, courts, and, and there's probably some element of race in there, but primarily not. This is not a racial story, but the guy is, you know, he's like this black Portuguese guy, right? And so um, I'm super excited to tell this story on Friday with, with, the, with the author. And, and the more you talk to these kind of authors that, that have PhDs and work their hearts out to study this stuff, the more these guys are like, oh, my God, and they get so fired up. And you're like, you're the best guest. I mean, I'm in a research library this Friday with this guy telling this story. It's going to be incredible. I mean, what's better than that? So that's what excites me is, is uh, look, there's 1,500 incredible episodes. We've had Andy Summers from the police, Stuart Copeland from the police, you know, all these different incredible people, actors. Jay Moore is a friend of mine now because of the show. He's been on a bunch of times. All of these people are incredible and wonderful. And I take each one of them like special into my heart because the experience, the human exchange, the ability to make friends out of these people, or at least very good acquaintances with a lot of them, it's just so special that um, I hate to even look back and be like, this one over that one. Because I, I share old ones all the time because there's still new conversations if you haven't heard them, and they're all incredible. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. Uh, and I did not mean to lead you to a place you didn't want to go. But uh, yeah, the, no, next one, the next one I think uh, typically is, is is the right answer. Uh, I I subscribe to, to that way of viewing it. All right, so uh, Pete, I'm going to ask you a question that we typically ask. It's actually a guy that co-hosts with me from time to time. It's his question, but I find it quite uh, revealing and and occasionally entertaining. So you are a talk show host. It's a it's a one show only deal. Uh, the show uh, is produced by you, directed by you. You own the entire thing. You get to select the guest. You get yeah. to pick a female guest, a male guest, uh, a musical act, and if you're into stand up comedy, a comedian. Uh, they can be alive or dead. Your okay. show can be for entertainment. It can be thought provoking. It can be whatever you want. Who are your guests? That's great. Uh, okay, so since they can be dead, let's get some dead people on the show. Uh, I would love to have Hitler on the show. And... <laughs> Pete, you're the first one to say Hitler. <laughs> well, why not? Right? No, no, he's a fascinating guy. There's no question. Right. And you know what? Like, let's give the guy a chance to be like, ah, oh, you know what? I got to change my ways, you know, maybe, let me have a crack at him, you know? <laughs> so wait a minute, you're going to convert him. I, I don't know. I'm just going to like hear him out and let him talk and be like, Hey man, could you lighten up a little bit? You know, yeah. uh, but maybe no. Okay. Um, I mean, who wouldn't, who wouldn't find that? Who wouldn't tune into that conversation? Oh, everybody would tune into that. Yeah. yeah. 
And, and I'll go old school on the ladies. I would like, uh, as you talked about Egyptians earlier, I would have Hubchetson on the show. She was one of the pharaohs, one of the female pharaohs. And she's a very notable one. She's got a huge like palace in Egypt. And I would love to be like, hey, you still matter. All these thousands of years later, people still are into you. You got a house out there in Egypt. It's still there. What do you think? And I would just let her talk <laughs> because she hadn't had a chance to talk very recently. Uh, can you spell that? Hapchetsit. I'll try H-A-P-T-S-E-U-T-T, -T, something like that. Hapchetsit. Okay. I don't know. She's not hard to find. She's she's one of the more like celebrity ones. Yeah. You know? Female pharaoh. I'm sure I'll find her. Yeah. Yeah. It's H A P S H E P S U T. So hat she and then P S U T. Okay. Got it. And uh, I had to look that up, so I'm not like I'm not being fancy. Um, I get to have a musical guest. Well, I'm I'm going to see Bono this weekend uh, for his book tour. I'm really big on U two, and I think his new book is just. It's fantastic. Here's a guy that you think you understand, and he's lived this incredible life that uh, nobody else has access to. You know, like he's talking about how you know, he's had dinner with Johnny Cash and Frank Sinatra, and they, and they resonate. You know, he's he's learned things from people who are educated by Martin Luther King in terms of like how you do things socially. He's gotten people on the right to work with people on the left. He, you know, he goes up and rubs George Bush's back, and they give billions of dollars towards his Africa projects, which Everybody agrees. We're like, I don't know how you did that, you know? And so uh, what a great uh, band and in person. Like, okay, look, the music is one thing. I mean, it's obviously world-class. It's great. Some of the best music ever made in terms of bands. But now they take their fame and they make this thing where they get antiretroviral drugs into Africa and are saving lives of people that they would have their life safe if they were here, right? If they were in Europe, they, they wouldn't be dying from these things. And and so the, the first world countries, if we can say that term, you know, they're like, hey, we'll we got money for this. You don't have to die. Here's the pills, you know? And so, uh, yeah, I mean, well, I would love to, I would, I would love to have that on the show and, and talk to him about that. I've actually tried to get Bono on the show with his book tour, but I don't know the right people yet. And then, uh, I, I love the fact that you're trying Pete. I love it. Yeah. That. Yeah, man. I, you know, you got to, right. And all they can do is just leave you in the same condition you are now. Like, hey, I don't know who that guy is. Right. So whatever. Yep. Um, and then look, there's no greater working comedian right now than Dave Chappelle. You know, he's on to pure par with everybody. And uh, he's such a thoughtful person. You know, he does things with his comedy. And I've asked, a, I know a lot of comedians, and I've asked a lot of comedians, like, what's the difference between you? You're a professional working comedian. You know jokes. You know, you can do setup punchline. You can do all kinds of things. You can do observation. All of these things, all of these skills. Why is Dave Chappelle the GOAT? And then they'll tell you why they think that is. And it's remarkable. And one of the things they say is like, not only does he weave this narrative throughout his entire thing, he's doing the weaving better than I can. And he's got that thing, that thing that President Obama has, that it thing, where you look and you're like, whoa, and it takes your breath away. You know, like when people say Ali would be the biggest person in the room the second he walked in before he even said a word. Like it's that thing that people have. And he's like in the comedian world, a lot of us are kind of surly. We're kind of dark. He has something that people can attach to. And I don't know that anybody can train that or get it. So I would love to have Dave Chappelle on the show. Yeah, Dave, I've been asked the question by my son because he's heard me ask it on this podcast. And uh, he's my answer for the comedian. And it's because he, he is he is truthful he is unafraid, and yeah, he, he weaves a, a tail better than uh, just about anybody. And, and the it factor is—it's hard to describe, but he definitely has it. Yeah, 
Yeah, he does. Yeah. When he said, um, in I think his last special, special before that, he said, I will not be summoned. You know, like that is powerful stuff. That goes back to Martin Luther saying, Catholic Church, you can't call on me to come and stand in front of you to kill me. No, you don't call on me. I will not be summoned. And he's saying the same thing. And then he says to the trans community, my people, don't punch down on my people. Oh, my God, that is such a powerful message. And he weaves that whole thing through this wonderful story. And you realize when you get there, you're like, and you have to know the things about Martin Luther to be able to get the fact that he's like, no, I refuse. I know what this means. I know I know where the herd is and I understand your people, but you cannot hit down on my people. You know, we need help, too. And so it's just that kind of awareness, that kind of deep thought, that wisdom. The audiences that he gets, he knows everybody, everybody, want, everybody will take Dave Chappelle's call. And there are certain people in the world that have that kind of ability. And like some of them, like Willie Nelson, Dolly Parton, everybody universally loves these people. Right? Nobody's ever mad at Dolly. She just got inducted into the Hall of Fame on Sunday night. So those kind of people are treasures and we have to talk to them. We have to hear what they have to say. So that's why I'd love to have Dave Chappelle. Now, it's a fantastic lineup. I would watch that show probably 50 times. Me too. I was like, I can't believe I got all these guys on the same show. <laughs> Any one of them would be amazing. Yeah. Uh, especially, uh, I can't say the uh, Pharaoh's Hop-chitsa. name. Hopschitzen. Yeah. Uh, and I don't and, know if I'm Hitler, saying it right. That's and, how I say it. And Hitler. I mean, H- H- and Bono and Dave Chappelle. Yeah. I mean, my gosh. That's, what that's if, what if I called Hitler off to, to do like, a, what if we played Pictionary? Since he fancies himself a bit of an artist. And we just had the whole group play Pictionary and Hitler had to do all the drawings. <laughs> that would uh, probably get more viewers than anything. It's, it's oh my god! Yeah, on. yeah. <laughs> How do people find your podcast, Pete? Uh, it's super simple. You can type in Pete A. Turner anywhere, or type in Break It Down Show. Uh, I like it when people watch on YouTube because there's you know, you're directly going to money. So um, you just type in Pete A. Turner on YouTube. You'll see my handsome visage. It'll come up. That's simple. Break It Down Show. P.A. Turner, either one of those things, and you should be able to walk your way right into one of my shows. And believe me, there is something for everyone. There's There are so many topics, interior design. I got a dude that makes surfboards hand by hand. He's, he's a second generation hand shaper of surfboards, and his dad has probably made more surfboards. I'm, I'll say it definitively. His dad has made more surfboards than any living human ever has. Wow. He's, he's dead now, but he's made, like, he would make like eight a day for like 50 years. And no one oh, else has ever done it. Yeah, they don't do it like that anymore, right? To hand shape it. He yeah. had this balsa wood handle on top of a piece of wood for shaping, and he held it for so many years that it became ergonomically designed to his hands. Holy cow. That's how many boards he made, right? And so he had all these incredible people that you may not know about, but here they are doing incredible things right in front of your face. Yeah, and you're bringing them to light, which I, I love about your yeah. show. That's awesome. Jeff Speedy, Speedy Cop, Jeff Block, right? He's also the guy. I mean, I've had him on the show a number of times because how incredible is that dude? He's he's got more energy than I understand. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Hey, Pete, I really appreciate you doing this. I know you didn't have to. Uh, I, I appreciate the time, and uh, I, I love the fact that Jeff connected me with you. I would love it if you'd hang on after we stopped the recording. Just uh, got a couple questions for you off recording. Yeah. Thanks. And Paul, really seriously, that was a blast. I love doing it, and it, that ninety minutes went by like nothing. So thank you for having me on the show, and I really appreciate it. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. 
You can find us at scodopodcast.com. Thank you.